If you're a student of people's behavior at all, one of the more fascinating experiences is to watch how people respond to truth. Now, it's been said that the truth hurts, and that's correct in some situations and not in others. Sometimes the truth can encourage. Sometimes the truth can strengthen a person, or it can challenge them to strive for new things, or it can stir their hearts and lead them to respond to God in faith. But other times the truth does hurt, and other times the truth does kind of uh, cut to the quick, and you can sometimes see people kind of cross their arms emotionally and physically because they reject the truth or because it angers them or because they're guilty and the truth embarrasses them because it exposes them. Whatever the case is, you can usually evaluate how people are responding to truth by the look on their face and by their body language, which all of a sudden made everybody self-conscious about how they're sitting and how they're looking. As I've been in ministry now, coming up on, oh, let me think, about 26 years this summer, I, I've learned as I counsel people, or as I talk to people, as I minister to people, to really watch how they respond. Because when you say something that is direct to a person, or when you speak truth to them, you can instantly tell how they're receiving it. You can tell whether they're receiving it or whether they're rejecting it. You can see that in a lot of different ways, but mostly... I watch people's eyes and mostly I watch their body language. Because some people love truth. Some people love to receive truth. And they love, even when it challenges them or confronts them, they love to take it in. Other people never want to hear truth. They want to live in a kind of a dream world where, where they, don't have to, uh, they don't have to think about it. They just want to kind of ignore it. Now there's probably no chapter in the book of Acts that shows us this principle and shows the great variety of reactions to the gospel than Acts chapter 17. In this chapter, Paul and Silas are going to go to three major cities in Europe. They're going to go to Thessalonica and Berea and Athens. Now, we know something about each of these three cities. We know some about more, more about some than others. Thessalonica we know because Paul later wrote two books, two letters to the Thessalonians. And in them, he talks to a church that was pretty steadfast for the Lord, that stayed faithful to the Lord. And he focuses them on life after death and the coming of Christ. And he does that by calling them to be set apart, calling them to be holy in their conduct and to persevere in their faith, which will make sense as topics when we look at what happens in just a minute. But Thessalonica was an important city. It was the capital city of Macedonia. And you remember that Paul had had a vision a few chapters ago where a man from Macedonia had said, please come, please bring the gospel, please minister to us. So Thessalonica would have been an important city because it was the capital city. It was a large city with a naval base and it had a large Jewish population. Berea was an important city in central Macedonia because it was a place of worship for the Romans, but it also had a large Jewish settlement. We don't know a lot about Berea, but what we do know in biblical terms is that um, there was a group of people there who loved to study the Bible every day. They were, we know them now as the Bereans, and if you've ever been in churches that have a Bereans class, how many know of a Bereans class, okay? You've heard that term before? That's taken after Acts chapter 17, of people that love to study the Bible every day. And the text says, we'll see in a minute, 
that they studied it with great eagerness. How many think that should describe the church of Jesus Christ? That they study the Bible with great eagerness, not begrudgingly, not kind of, ooh, we got to study the Bible again. But, but they dive into it. That was the Bereans. And then Athens, we know, as probably the most important and prominent city of the three. We don't know if Paul and Silas really planned to go there, but uh, due to the circumstances and how God worked things, God led them there. But Athens was a very important city. It was and is the center of Greek culture. It was the place where Socrates and Pericles and Sophocles all lived. It was where the first Olympics were held. And during the first century, culture and art and, and philosophy and democracy were at their strongest in the city of Athens. It's considered by historians to be the birthplace of Western civilization, which we can evaluate as either a good thing or a bad thing. It's really a mixed blessing because as advanced as the Greeks were and as advanced as the city of Athens was, it was also the place where Gnosticism and humanism thrived. It was the place where man, uh, he's always loved himself. Man has always uh, been into himself. But it was the place where that really came forth. And in Athens, they loved knowledge. They just didn't necessarily love truth. There is a difference. There's a difference between gaining knowledge, which we see all around us in our culture and the, and the vast variety of knowledge and, and intellectual uh, information that we can take in. There's a difference between that and true wisdom. The Greeks loved knowledge. They loved debating philosophy. They loved talking about themselves. They loved talking about how great man is and how wise man is and how much man knows. And they would go after each other and debate all the intricacies of life. But there was very little wisdom because their focus was on man's greatness, not on the greatness of God. And we need to understand that context because as Paul and Silas go into these cities, especially into Athens, we see a number of reactions to the gospel. And it's based on what people already believe and how they're responding to the word of God. So let's see this. We're going to take this in two sections this morning because we got a lot of text and um, we're just going to try to dive through it. And I'll try to be as quick as I can. Let's start verses one to 15 of chapter 17. Thanks for following along. Now, when they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, excuse me, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned from, with them from the scripture, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a lumber of the leading women. But the Jews, being jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they didn't find them, speaking of Paul and Silas, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason's welcomed them. And they're all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities 
who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. There's a little dig. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. When the Jews of Thessalonica, that's the last city, found out that the word of God had been claimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy remained there. That tells us that Paul's the one they're really ticked off at. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They left. Now, just to refresh our memory, could you guys toss up the map just for a minute, please? Just to refresh our memory, I want to let you know where we are in the journey at this point. You see that they started here in Antioch. They've traveled all throughout Asia Minor over to Troas. Then they were in Philippi. That's Everybody see that? That's where the jail was. Then they come down through these two cities and they settle in Berea. In Berea, the people from Thessalonica, which is right here, come down to Berea, start to stir up the crowd. So they bring Paul all the way down here to Athens. Now, that's a long journey because this is about 45 miles. So you can tell how long that's going to be. So at this point, they're in Athens. This is about 800 miles from Jerusalem. So they're a long way from home. And at this point, God is working in them and God's going to work in Athens. But before we get to Athens... Let's see what happens first in Thessalonica and Berea. Now, in these two cities and later in Athens, Paul continues the habit that he has had to go to the synagogue first. Now, that seems odd, maybe, because we know that Paul had a specific calling and commission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet in each city he would go in, he would start by going to the Jews. Why did he do that? He did that because he knew God still loved the Jews and he knew that God had a plan for the Jews and that Jesus had come as their Messiah and they had to understand that their reliance on the law, their reliance on doing the right thing and saving themselves, which will never work, that that was futile and that God had proven that through their ancestors and that they needed to trust Christ. So he says in Romans 1.16, I'm taking the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. I have to go to the Jews first, understanding that most of them will reject it. And when they reject it, then I believe that gave Paul even greater freedom to go to the Gentiles and to take the gospel to them, because at that point, the Jews couldn't object. They couldn't say, well, you never came to us and told it. He would go to the Jews first. And they would reject it, and then he'd say, fine, I'll go to the Gentiles. It's really a brilliant plan. And it gave him the ability to talk to both groups and, and, and to present the gospel to him. Now, the sad reality is that the Jews couldn't stand the Gentiles. And even if they rejected the gospel, they didn't want anybody else to hear it. Their motive at this point is not altruistic. They hate the gospel. They hate Jesus Christ. They hate the Gentiles. So they really hated that Paul would preach Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. But the Spirit also gives us a little bit of insight. If you look back at the text in verse 5, he gives us an insight into what else is going on. 
he says in verse 5 that the Jews were jealous. Now, jealousy does strange things to the way people think and act. But jealousy always has one distinct purpose. It wants to divide. Jealousy always wants to divide. Now, that makes sense because jealousy is really rooted in selfishness. And we call it by a lot of different names, but jealousy is selfishness. It was introduced by the devil who is proud and is selfish and was jealous of God. And he divided heaven. He divided the angels. He took a third of the angels with him and said, God really shouldn't be God. I should be God. You should follow me. You should listen to me. We can overthrow heaven. When a person is jealous, they're trying to drag someone else down by elevating themselves. And that's exactly what Satan did. And that expresses itself in a lot of different ways. Criticism, gossip, grudges, lack of forgiveness, shutting people out, pitting people against each other. Any way we want to slice it, it's sin. And it only divides if for no other reason than when somebody's jealous and they start to talk about somebody and they start to pit people against each other, everybody's got to take a side. This happens in marriages, it happens in families, it happens in workplaces, it even happens in churches. Now, in Thessalonica, the Jews were jealous of Paul. Why? Well, maybe they didn't like that he was getting all the attention. Maybe they didn't like that the crowds were responding to him. They didn't like that the gospel uh, was, was penetrating the hearts of the disciples. We don't, uh, excuse me, the Gentiles. We don't really know. The bottom line is that he preached the gospel. He talked about Jesus Christ. He presented Jesus Christ as Savior. And the way people react gives us two very important spiritual insights about the gospel and about the way people react to it. Look back at verse 6 for a second. When they come to the, to the authorities, when they bring uh, Jason and, and, and these other people to the authorities, they make the claim that Paul and Silas have upset the world. Now, I want that to stand out to you because it's kind of an odd statement considering at this point there's no technology. Communication really takes a matter of weeks and even months. It doesn't take a matter of, of seconds and, and minutes. Now, what that tells us, and, and I want you to catch that phrase, what that tells us is that the power of the gospel had developed a reputation around the world for changing people's lives. They knew in Thessalonica that the gospel had had an impact in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in Asia Minor, and then going into Europe. Somehow, that communication had gotten around. So when Paul and Silas show up, they say what they're speaking is shaking the very foundation of the world. Now, that word upset there doesn't mean that that they're disturbed and frightened. You know, sometimes when you're upset, you're like, oh, I'm so upset about that. That's not what the word means. The word in the original language means to stir up and excite. In other words, they said the gospel that these men are preaching has stirred up and excited the world. They don't know in their accusation that they're really promoting the gospel. Everybody's going Crazy, everybody's stirred up, everybody's excited about what they're saying about Jesus Christ. There's a lot of stirring in this pastor because the gospel was transforming people's lives and those who didn't believe considered that to be a threat. That's why we see so much opposition 
to the gospel and the Bible and Christianity today. Not because we're offensive. And not because what we're talking about this morning is offensive. It's because the gospel convicts people and they don't like it. The people in Europe were stirred up. They started to hear about a Savior. They started to hear that there was hope. They started to hear that it wasn't dependent on man's works. It was dependent on salvation and trust in Jesus Christ. And they got excited about that. And the people in Thessalonica, these Jews who rejected Christ, they say, we don't want anything to do with that. That upsets us because we know it's true and we're convicted. They knew the truth and it bothered them. But also notice, we'll see their response in a minute. Also notice in verse 7 that they say that Paul and Silas are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. The spiritual principle here is that man always sees his laws and his values as more important than God's. Hear that again, because we see that right now politically and morally and socially, especially in our country, that mankind sees his laws and his values as more important than God's. Well, these, these, these guys, they're, they're offending the decrees of Caesar. Caesar had been dead for 75 years. He was no longer an issue for them. And I did a little research on Caesar. I, 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 I wish I had studied this hard in school because I would have made really, really good grades. But Caesar was an egomaniac. He grabbed so much power that those who were in his Senate were so irritated by him that they all participated in his assassination. 35 different people attacked Caesar and assassinated him, and he had 23 stab wounds. We always think of it as Brutus just came with the knife from behind and that was it. No, there was a mob around him. They attacked him because he was so unpopular with his people. He was only liked by the lower classes. There was turmoil all throughout his rule, there was civil war that took place during the time he was the leader, and his death caused the end of the Roman Empire. He was well known, but he was not a great leader. So it's ironic that 77 years later, they held his laws so highly, and they accused Paul and Silas of breaking his laws by talking about another king, which they may have done, but we have no record in the text. They weren't just promoting Jesus as king, they were talking about Jesus as savior. Now, the point is that people will always misrepresent what we say and they'll criticize us for not loving man's standards as much as we love God's. But we serve Jesus Christ first. And that angers a lot of people. In fact, the Thessalonian Jews were so ticked off and so determined to stop this and to reject anything about Christ that when they can't find Paul and Silas, they go find some other believers and drag them out in the hope that they'll flush out Paul and Silas. Now, we've seen this many times throughout Acts, but we've never seen this kind of persecution by proxy. They start to attack the church itself. And Jason and other believers are brought out, and the passage says that they're forced to pay a bond. They have to pay a fine, which basically says, if any more problem happens, you don't get your money back. So this is a a crisis situation. But look at what happens in the text. Go back to it. When Paul and Silas 
go to Berea and they start preaching Christ again. You think, well, they're gluttons for punishment. No, they just have a mission. And this time when they get to Berea and they go to the synagogue and they start to preach about Christ, this time is different because many of the Jews in the synagogue believe. And they start to eagerly examine Scripture to reinforce their faith. Now, a couple of thoughts I want to give you here. First of all, this is really the first time in the book of Acts that the gospel is widely uh, reacted to and widely accepted by the Jews. We see a change outside of Acts 2 at Pentecost when there are Jews from all over the world. Outside of Acts 2, everything from that point really is related to the Gentiles. But here in Acts 17, right in the middle of the book, we see the Jews embrace the gospel. And that shows, again, the value of taking the gospel to them. The second thing we see is that they closely looked at the word of God to validate their beliefs. And I want you to know this morning, that's one of the greatest purposes of the Bible. Not just to feed us and to encourage us and to make us feel loved and secure. The purpose of studying the Bible is also to give us strength in our trust and to give us power in our witness by equipping us, by by studying it and preparing to defend our faith and also to fill our hearts and minds with the word of God and have confidence to be set apart and confidence to trust in Christ and confidence to talk to other people about the good news. Thy word have I hid in my heart so I might not sin against thee. In other words, get that word engrafted into your life so you know how to live for Christ. And that's what the Berean Jews did. They, they looked at it, they heard the gospel, and they said, we want to study this for ourselves. Every believer should want to study the word of God for themselves. And I'm not just talking, well, I got to do my, do my thing today and get my 15 minutes. I'm not talking that. That's fine. Make sure you're in the word. But there's so much more. Get into the Word. Be eager about it. Dive into it. Prove what you believe. I don't know how you came to faith in Christ. I don't know how you formed your theology. And and you really don't even know how, how I formed my theology. A lot of people have influenced me through the years. But the way theology is formed is through studying the Bible. Your kids are going to learn what you teach them. If you teach them about the Word of God, that's what they'll believe. But when they get to college, all of a sudden they're going to hear all kinds of philosophies and teachers that want to break down their faith and professors that are that are uh, carnal and professors that are using philosophy to try to to detract them for Christianity. Will they have a firm foundation of faith? Do they see it in you? The Bible is there to instruct us and to validate our beliefs and to equip us. And that's what happened in Berea. And then look, as they studied the Old Testament third, because that's all they had. And they held it up against the gospel message and against Jesus Christ. They realized the clarity of who Christ was and what he has done and how he fulfilled the law and fulfilled the prophecies and was the only one who can save. Rarely in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, do we see the Jews honestly look at Jesus Christ with open minds like that. The crowds in Galilee, you remember, as they followed Jesus, they trusted in him and they heard the word and they knew that he was the savior. But off to the side, you always had the religious elite kind of standing at an angle. You know, somebody's arrogant when they kind of stand at an angle, right? Not straight on. This is accepting this. This is 
How dare you? It's like every Western you ever see. How dare you? The religious elite and the scholars stood off to the side, scoffing and looking at each other and rolling their eyes. How dare this man from Nazareth tell us what to do? And they didn't bother to go back and study the prophets. They didn't bother to go back and look at what the Scripture had said. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be Emmanuel. They didn't even bother to look at it. So when Jesus comes along, and the crowds are cheering, and they're responding, and people are getting healed, and people are getting saved, and demons are being cast out, they're standing there saying, we better put him to death. Because they were so jealous and because they did not want to study the word of God and see the truth. And that's so indicative of so many people today. The facts are there and the truth is obvious and logical, even though it requires trust. Even though we can't see it tangibly, we know it's true. But for so many people, it's more convenient and doesn't require any self-sacrifice to reject Jesus. And if that's you this morning, if that's where you are, I pray you will open your heart to the truth of the gospel. And I pray you will listen closely to what Paul says in Athens because it is the spiritual answer for your life right now. It is the, it is the confidence and hope that you can have from trusting Christ as Savior. The alternative is what we see here. It's to be close to the gospel. And the more we close our hearts to the Word of God, listen carefully now, the more we close our hearts to the Word of God, the more hardened our heart and mind get. That's what happened to the Thessalonian Jews. Only this time, they're not mad because the Gentiles are trusting Christ. Oh, that, that got them in an uproar in Thessalonica. This time, somehow, they get wind that the Jews in Berea are leading the way in trusting Christ. So they walk 45 miles to Berea. And they start to agitate and stir up the crowd and cause the same kind of conflict that they had in Thessalonica. Again, jealousy is a strange thing. And jealousy is almost always combined with some level of anger. And maybe you're experiencing that this morning. Maybe you're the instigator or maybe you're the victim. Some people just cannot let go of jealousy. They can't let go of resentment and hostility. They want their way. They want to be noticed. And if necessary, they will divide. And that is evil. The hardness of people's heart here is shocking. Instead of rejoicing in what God was doing, instead of rejoicing in the fact that people were turning their lives over to the Lord, They just rejected it. They didn't have their hearts softened. They just fought it. And we see a multitude of different reactions here to the gospel. Some Jews violently rejecting it. Some Jews believing it and praising God. Many Greeks believing. And now Paul heads to Athens. Because he has to head to Athens. Because these Thessalonican Jews stir up so much problem that they say, Paul, you got to get out of here. Silas and Timothy, you guys stay. But Paul, you've got to go. And they take Paul out to the sea. 
And they take him all the way down to Athens, which was hundreds of miles away from Berea. And he goes down there and he says to Timothy and Silas and Luke, who's writing this, you guys come down. And as he's waiting, something very significant happens. Look at it, starting in verse 16. Now, Paul, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. That's a joke, I'll tell you in a minute. Because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. If they're so strange, why are they so curious? Well, verse 21 tells us, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. So Paul, verse 22, stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. There's a little dig at Gnosticism. Therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man which he has appointed. Speaking of Christ, having furnished proof to all men by raising Christ from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Diocenes, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, let's try to break this passage down in just a couple minutes. There's so much here that I really just want to focus quickly on three phrases. One in verse 16, one in verse 21, and one in verse 23. The first one is in verse 16. As Paul's waiting for Paul and Silas, uh, excuse me, for Timothy and Silas to come down to Athens. And he's walking around the city, not as a tourist, not as a sightseer going, wow, look at that. That's incredible. He is walking around carefully observing the spiritual condition of the culture. Now, for you and I in 2012, it is vitally important that we do this. That we're not passive and indifferent 
and just kind of uh, saying, oh, whatever happens in Europe and Greece and the economy and, and marriage and, and all, oh, it's, yeah, I know, it's, we, we better pay attention to it later on. What is going on around us is crucially important, not only to our future, but to the effectiveness of our ministry. And we need to watch what's going on politically, socially, morally, and spiritually. We need to be a student of the religion and sociology and history and political science of our culture. This is not only one of the most effective ways to know what's happening, but it also gives us opportunities to talk to people about their lives, who they are, what they believe in, and what they believe is going to happen. Now, as Paul walks around Athens, he doesn't have to talk to a lot of people because he gets a very clear picture of what they believed. He knows because he sees a plethora of idols. He sees all kinds of statues and, and idols that have been formed and all kinds of worship that's going on. And it says in the text, and this is the phrase I want you to see in verse 16, it says that it provoked his spirit. What a great phrase that is. It shows the depth of his passion and the depth of his heart for souls. He was aware of the Greek culture. He was educated. He had seen idolatry in Israel. He knew what rejection of God was like. But now his perspective has changed. And as he walks through Athens, he is distraught over the blindness of the human heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I pray, I pray, listen to me now, I pray that we will have the same stirring in our hearts as we look at our culture. Not angry, not judgmental, not critical, not how could they do such a thing. It should not be a surprise to us that man loves sin. Our hearts should be broken by it. Our hearts should be distraught at the spiritual indifference and humanism and rejection of Christ. And we should be frustrated and bothered and at times just a little bit outraged by how much has changed. Just in our own country, over the last three years especially, we have seen an alteration of what is moral and what is normal. There's been an aggressive push for the legalization of gay marriage, primarily from the president. The nuclear family has continued to be broken apart by sexual immorality and by divorce and by the isolation that technology has now created. And if you don't believe that sentence, just sit in a restaurant and watch people all texting and not talking to each other. We've isolated ourselves. Drugs and alcohol are not only not negative anymore, they're heavily promoted and they're embraced even by Christians. And that's led to an increase in crime and death and all sorts of problems. Hard work and success no longer uh, valued. It's now viewed critically. The philosophy that people should get handouts and everybody should get the same thing, no matter what they do, how much or how little, that's increasingly taking hold. And probably the most alarming thing and the trend that is most prominent now is that Christianity is being constantly criticized and the rights of Christians and the rights of the evangelical church are being steadily suppressed. While Islam is gaining latitude and we're being told you can't ever be critical of their ideology. But but everybody criticize us. Now, I'm not trying to be political this morning. I'm just preaching Acts 17. Because that's what Paul sees 
as he's in Athens. And Paul was a world, uh, a, a, a world wise person. He knew what was going on, but he walks around Athens and his heart's broken. And he sees all these idols and he realizes as his spirit is provoked, and I hope our spirits are provoked, he realizes that something has to happen. Then we see in verse 18, he goes to the synagogue and he starts to debate the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And they're largely dismissing what he has to say because he's talking about the resurrection of Christ. That is beyond ironic. Because in the Greek religion and in Greek philosophy, we know it now as Greek mythology, many men and women were made physically immortal after they were resurrected from the dead and many were made into gods. Achilles was believed to be resurrected as well as Castor and Heracles and Asclepius. And many of the philosophers now, like Plutarch, they rejected the idea of the resurrection. But the parallel between the Greek belief in their religion of resurrection and the actual physical resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't lost on Paul. That's why when you look at verses 30 and 31, he says God has furnished proof about it. Not in, in Achilles. That's, that's a myth. That's something you can't prove. We can prove it. 500 of us saw Jesus Christ after he was resurrected. And the Greeks start to want to hear more about it. And it's ironic that he's talking to these two groups, the, the uh, Epicureans and the Stoics, because they opposed each other. The Epicureans believed in the absence of pain as the highest pleasure. That's why they started to walk down the path of hedonism. Whatever feels good, do it. That fit very nicely into their teaching that the gods didn't interfere with human life. So essentially, they believed, and I, I learned this this week. I wish, again, I had learned this in college. But they believed that participation in, in learning and culture and politics might create unrealistic expectations that they couldn't fulfill and that that would lead to the absence of pleasure. So they basically didn't get involved. Boiled down, they didn't want to be bothered by God or by anybody else. They just wanted pleasure. Sound like anything you know? The Stoics were, were the other extreme. They believed that emotions were destructive. So they emphasized self-control and discipline and logic and clear thinking. The Epicureans are over there going, ah, whatever, yeah, just give me all my pleasure. It's a big party. All happy, go lucky, all thrilled, not wanting to think too hard. And the Stokes on the other side were looking at them going, what is wrong with you? They were all somber and sober and disciplined, and they believed in reason and faith, but they were also pantheistic. They believed that God was in everything. And the Stoics did not believe in any life after death. Now, now, why does all that matter? Because the Epicureans and the Stoics are both standing there debating Paul. And they're saying, oh, this guy's an idle babbler. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And yet, in the same sentence, 
it says that the Athenians like to tell and hear anything new. What a description of our culture. What a description of how we live. We love the latest thing, even if it's just a bunch of babbling. Everything is quick. Everything's disposable. We have no patience for what doesn't excite us right now. That's why Apple can get away with selling a new iPhone every year. That's why 50% of people in a recent poll said that Facebook may be starting to be outdated. Not that either of those things is bad. What I'm trying to show is how quickly we say, I don't really care about it anymore. It's passe because it's not new and awesome. So in 10 years, and we're seeing this with the stock price with Facebook, in 10 years, Facebook will be replaced by something else. And the new iPhone will be another new gadget and it'll be thinner and lighter and have more power and cost more. And Apple, like a bunch of lemmings, they'll get, <laughs> I've got to have it. I've got to have it. Now, I'm not being critical of those of you with iPhones. My wife's got an iPhone. You know what I'm saying though, right? The thirst, the thirst for something new. The thirst for the next best thing. And people do that with religion. People say, I've got to have the next best thing. Give me something new. Gratify me. Thrill me. Excite me. Entertain me. And those are just symptoms of a spiritual void. And Paul saw that. So when they bring him to the Areopagus, which we'll talk about in a second, that's, that's the judicial court of appeals. It's like, in a sense, the Supreme Court. Paul says, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. Look at the pictures just for a second, guys. If you would toss them up. Let me show you a couple of things. I just, I'm, I'm liking getting some perspective. This is Athens today. Okay, this is the Parthenon. We know that famous structure. Back here, you can see Mars Hill. This is where the Areopagus, this is where Paul was talking. You see this little building called Nike. That's where the Nike store was in Athens. So right by the Parthenon, they had a Nike store. I'm sure there was a Starbucks. That's not marked here. That, that may be right there. Panera, you know. But anyway, Parthenon, Nike store, and this is Mars Hill. Okay, go to the next slide if you would, please. This is from another angle. We were just viewing it back from here. So this is looking this way. So Mars Hill's off the screen. I could not find a picture that had on the screen, but basically it's right here. This is the Parthenon, the center of Athens. Please go to the next slide. Thank you. This was the actual steps to the Areopagus, okay? So this area is known as the Areopagus. If you see right there, that is a plaque that has Paul's sermon from Acts 17. This is a recent picture. So in Athens, they've actually put Paul's sermon right here on a plaque. Isn't that cool? So these were the steps that Paul would have walked up to go to the Areopagus. If you go to the next one, I can show you a different angle on it. Uh, This is a little bit closer up. These are the steps that he would have walked up. Very slippery. If you go to the next slide, I'll give you one more angle. This is from the top of the steps looking down. Okay? So the Apostle Paul would have come up these steps to go talk at the judicial court of Athens, known as the Areopagus. Okay? I think I've got one more. If you could do I have any more? Am I done? I'm done. Are they shaking their heads at me? Okay. So you have some perspective now, right? So right near the Parthenon, right near the Acropolis, which is the big stone outcropping that the Parthenon sat on, right behind the Acropolis 
was the Areopagus. Now, that's where Paul goes. And he brings up, as he's invited or, or encouraged or prompted or dragged to the Areopagus, he decides to bring up the subject of Jesus. And he says, as I've walked around your city and I've looked at all the different idols that you have, I found a very interesting one. It says, to an unknown God. Now, the very fact that they acknowledged God means that all the other options they had weren't sufficient. That all their knowledge and all their wisdom and all their religions left them void. So they had to put up an idol to a God they didn't know, thinking there must be something better out there. That's true today. All man's knowledge and wisdom and religion will all prove insufficient. The Athenians knew there was something more. They wanted to know what it is. And that's important for us to remember because if people today were so convinced that man-centered philosophies and religions were enough, they would be full of joy and they would not be looking for the next best thing. Have you ever thought about the fact as believers, we don't have to look for the next best thing or to believe in what's trendy because we trust in Christ. And he's the answer and he's sufficient and I don't have to entertain any other thoughts about anything else because I found the Savior. But they kept striving. So Paul says, let me sum it up in two minutes. He says, there's a living God out there. He's a God who's personal. He's not made with hands. What God could be made by us? How could we form out of stone and out of clay something and say, that is God over us. You've created it out of your hands. You need to understand that there is a God that created all things and you think He's unknown, but He's closer than you think. You can know Him. And He's not a God that's made with hands. He's the God that created you. And He gives you breath. And He rules over man. And nothing's out of His control. And even your poets know about Him. And let me tell you, Athenians, if you will seek Him, He is near. Judgment's coming someday. But to prepare for that, we need to repent. And He will save you. This is not based on some deep, nasty, carnal sin. It was based on their self-sufficiency. They thought they could do it. It's age-old history. Man has always thought, I can save myself. And man has always been proven wrong. So he says, I walked around and I see this, this statue to the unknown God. And it struck me. That's my God. That's the one you're looking for. And you can know Him and you can trust in Him and He will deliver you from sin and secure you forever. And He sums it up in four words in verse 28. In Him we live. Athenians, there is one God and He is loving and He is merciful and He is willing to save you. And one of the people who worked in the Areopagus trusts in him. And then other people start to trust. And this woman, Damaris, trusts. And then more people trust. And the response in Athens starts to spread out because people understand that there is a God who loves us and saves us. What's your response today? If you've never believed in Christ, 
I hope your heart's stirred. I hope you realize that you can trust in Christ, that you can know the Lord who loves you and offers to save you and wants to deliver you. He died for your sins and he rose again to defeat death. And if you will put your faith in him, he will forgive you forever. And if you know him this morning, I hope your heart's stirred. What's your heart stirred about? I came back to that question as I finished studying. What is my heart stirred about? Am I calloused and hardened? Am I looking for the next thing instead of living for the Lord? Or is there a passion and a hunger for the Lord? If your heart's hardened this morning, you need to repent of that. Even as a believer, you need to repent of that. Are are our hearts stirred for studying the word like the Bereans or about the need of the world like Paul or about the need to turn from sin and trust in Christ like the Athenians? The Lord is so gracious and compassionate and he wants to change our hearts. That's why he made himself known. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that you are not a God made of stone that you are not an idol formed with man's hands. That you are not unknown and distant. Unwilling to care about the needs of mankind. But Lord, you proved your love. By sending your son. You proved your love. By the fact that he died for our sins. You proved your power. And your ability to save by his resurrection. And Lord, when we seek you and draw near to you, you draw near to us. Father, I pray for each heart in this room this morning that you would teach us and work in our hearts wherever we are. Lord, that we would respond to the truth with trust and with obedience and with holiness, not with bitterness and rancor and anger and hostility and pride. Lord, where that's true in our lives, I pray we would repent of it and I pray you would remove it immediately. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you care about us. And Lord, as we trust in you, you save us forever and hold us in the palm of your hands as we sang earlier. We are yours. We praise you and exalt you this morning that you are the God who is known and the God who is the Savior. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.